You are listening to Radio Free Humanity, the Marxist humanist podcast. My name is Brendan Cooney. And I'm Andrew Kleiman. What would a post-capitalist or socialist society look like? Upon what principles would it be organized? How do we make such decisions? These are the sort of questions we'll be talking about today with author Michael Albert, who joins us for our main segment to talk about his new book, No Bosses. To hear more episodes of Radio Free Humanity, to read more about the issues discussed, or to join in the conversation, please visit MarxistHumanistInitiative.org. You can also make a donation to the podcast there on the website. While our podcast is hosted by MHI, the views expressed by the co-hosts and guests of Radio Free Humanity are their own. They do not necessarily reflect the views and positions of MHI. In just a moment, we'll be talking with Michael Albert about his new book. But first, as we do in every episode, we're going to take a few minutes to talk about some current events. We are recording this current event section on Tuesday, February 15th, and we're going to be talking about the ongoing trucker protests, as they've been referred to in the media, in Canada. As of yesterday, um, the Canadian government had finally cleared the Ambassador Bridge and let traffic flow between the border. But um, protests still continue to cripple Ottawa. And as of the last night or this morning, the Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau finally evoked the Emergency Act. This will allow the government to arrest truckers, to um, seize their assets, uh, freeze their bank accounts, force tow truck drivers to move trucks, even if they don't want to move trucks. They can also suspend the insurance on their trucks, which means they, they can't drive like a lot of people i've been watching this unfold over the past three weeks and wondering when the canadian government was going to actually do something and play hardball um they've taken such a hands-off approach just hoping this would all go away if they they ignored it and i would have thought that we would have learned something about the alt-right and about the populist right by now and how they will constantly escalate and sabotage everything if you give them an inch they're going to take a mile And this incredibly patient and soft approach to the dangerous far-right elements uh, stands in stark contrast to how the left is often treated um, by governments and cops, etc. I mean, I think especially about here in the United States and the way Black Lives Matter demonstrators were met with tear gas and police violence a couple years ago. And I, I'll tell you, I don't know uh, how well it works to compare this with uh, the George Floyd stuff, which was mostly the U.S. Canada does have its own system of policing and so forth. Uh, yeah, they were taking a very hands-off approach. And I tell you, there's a lot of, of course, kowtowing to the fact that these people are, are white, because what they call First Nations, Native people in, in Canada, haven't been historically treated this way. But also, the way they dealt with the separatist movement in, in, in Quebec about 50 years ago was nothing like this. There's a lot of fear going on, and the, the ruling class in, in, in Canada was very divided, and is still very divided, uh, even though this occupation, convoy, protest, whatever, it doesn't have a lot of support, even uh, you know among the conservatives, but there are the appeasers, and then there, there's the other side. But the desire to appease is really, really, really strong. I mean, it even goes to, like, the New York Times editorial board. Well, this was uh, five days ago. They had an editorial by the New York Times editorial board basically saying the right to protest is, is a hallmark of democracy. And basically, 
all the stuff that you and everybody else has been talking about, about the fact that this is not just peaceful protest, they, they ignored all of that and basically said, entertaining the use of force to disperse or contain legal protests is wrong. We may disagree with the protesters' cause, but they have a right to be noisy and even disruptive. I don't understand why the New York Times editorial referred to it as a legal protest. They didn't have protest permits to occupy bridges and cities for weeks at a time. And, and, and har- harassing the residents of Ottawa? I mean, that, that's, that's not legal. And at some point there was some resolution passed to stop them from honking their horns in Ottawa, but the police never enforced any of it, so the horn honking continued. Well, yeah. I, I, I think that that's... Once you start talking about stuff like military and police and doing nothing, I think we get to the root of a lot of people's fears the side of the border and that their side of the border which is the right wing is very powerful among such people and they're afraid of pushing it too far not because of public sentiment in general and they're afraid of prosecuting trump the department of justice because they're they're worried i think about how much power they ultimately have within the police security forces military and so forth i think that's probably a large part of the 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 pussyfooting on both sides here well, it definitely seems like the strategy of the populist right right now is just to sabotage things, whether it's truckers sabotaging the Canadian economy or governors of Republican states in the U.S. just spreading COVID intentionally to try to bring down the Biden presidency. Or like where I live in Philadelphia, where the cops are intentionally lowering their clearance rate on murders to like add to the escalation of violence in the city because they're you know, having a tantrum because of the Black Lives Matter movement. Seems like the right strategy is just sabotage, destroy everything, burn it all down. Yeah, I I think that that's right. And I've been reading these interviews with, I think his name is Joe Walsh, who was one of the leaders of the Tea Party movement. And he's he was saying, like, these people, the grassroots kind of like Trumpites, they say that they just want to burn everything down, you know. I mean, just take them literally. That's what they want. You know, they've had it. They're, they're, they're pissed off. You know, they, they just want to, if they can't have, like the way he puts it, they want to go back to 1953, which is really amazing because you have to be about 75 years old at least to remember 1953. But they, if, if they can't have a, a, a white supremacist country like existed in 1953, if they can't go back to that, they just want to burn everything down. So, and, and talking about the United States here, by the way, in connection with the, the, the truckers' protests in, in Canada, it's not just analogy. A lot of this has come from the United States. I mean, a tremendous amount of their support, both like the Ted Cruz's and the Donald Trump's, but also the, also the financial support. Yeah, just recently a group of hacktivists hacked into the website Give, Send, Go, which was um, taking donations to send to the truckers, right? Bitcoin donations. And over half of the donations came from the U.S. Yeah. And they're very, very unpopular among the mainstream Canadians. The people of Ottawa stood up and push back and have been fighting back and that may have been the straw that broke the camel's back and gave uh, Trudeau the permission so to speak to to invoke the the emergencies act 
because on, on Sunday what you had was people taking the streets in Ottawa. They blocked the movement of the convoy. They just stood in the street and prevented 20 cars and pickup trucks uh, from moving. They blocked thoroughfares leading to the protest zone in, in Ottawa. This is people all, all throughout the city. Well, these Nazi truckers have really come across a very powerful tactic to cripple cities. And I can't help but think about how this could be used in the United States, where the urban-rural divide is such a proxy for Trumpism and race, right? Where, like, there was so much drama around voter suppression uh, recently in the cities, um, which is, like, just a proxy for, like, voter suppression of minorities, Um, It would be so easy for truckers to paralyze the city and to take out their, you know, white rage on people of the cities by just cutting off their access to deliveries of goods and clogging the roadways and forming a corridor of trucks around the city and and starving the people of the city if it really came to that. And that's exactly what Rand Paul called for, you know, the senator, libertarian. I noted when he spoke, he's in favor of protests like this, all kinds of cities in the United States. I mean, he mentioned cities, right? So it was very deliberate on his part. It's a very good tactic if people let it be a very good tactic. The people of Ottawa, you know, are rising up to stop it. You can stop it this way, you know, with your bodies in the street and the federal government with its emergencies act. It can, it can be stopped, but it takes the political will to stop it. So Jacobin Magazine recently published an article by Luke Savage about the Canadian trucker protest, which I read expecting it to be bad, but hoping maybe they would have learned their lesson by now. But basically, Luke Savage's article followed the basic boilerplate template that all Jacobin articles do when they're discussing right-wing populist movements. I think in a recent podcast, we joked that they should just get like a computer algorithm to write these articles because they're so predictable and the formula is so obvious. So that basically the article could have been about January 6th. It could have been about anti-abortion. It could have been about homophobia. It could have been about Trumpism. It could have been about truckers. It could have been about anything. But there's, there's always the same reason why everything happens. Whatever, whatever is happening in the world, who is to blame? Drum roll, please. The answer is economic distress and the failure of neoliberalism to deal with economic distress. Ah. So somehow Luke Savage tries to imply that there is economic distress behind the trucker protests and that that we're not going to be able to really stop the right wing's forward march and the popularity of right wing protests until we deal with economic distress. Typical of Jacobin commentary, no evidence that there's any economic distress behind the trucker protests. As we know, like they started as a protest against a vaccine mandate. There's no inherent economic issue in there in a vaccine mandate. People are not opposed to vaccines because of their economic distress. They're opposed to vaccines because they're fucking idiots. Yeah, I mean, and, and, and these truckers are, are employed. And actually, it's great, you know, truckers' wages are going up right now, right? Because there's a high demand for truckers and there's not enough truckers. All companies all over the place are scrambling to find more truck drivers and it's easier and easier to get. They're like recruiting teenagers to be truck drivers now. Um, it's ridiculous. I mean, Luke Savage even goes so far to seem to imply in his article that vaccine mandates are like some sort of bad thing and these people are victims of... Yeah, but it's not only him. It's people like the so-called Marxist professor uh, Rick Wolf. He says, I'm not anti-vaccine, but mandates are another thing. People should be allowed to choose. 
Wow, he that's Rick Wolf. That is Rick Wolf. Yeah, for, oh, but, okay. And the thing is, I'm all for people being able to choose, but choose for yourself. Don't choose for the rest of us. Yeah. Okay. I mean, my whole fucking last last year of my life has been just wrecked by anti-vaxxers who are ruining my ability to go and do anything. Absolutely. Can't send my kids to school. I can't like leave my house because all these assholes who haven't gotten vaccinated all around me. Right. So it's just this is bullshit. Yeah, and, say, and, like, and, and they don't have to get vaccinated. Stay home. Yeah, they should stay home. Yeah, they should stay home. Stay away. Right. From other people. Yeah, that's your freedom. Okay. What, what, look, everybody has known this. You, you grew up knowing this. You know, your your freedom to extend your arm stops at my nose. Yeah. Okay. Right. I mean, right? You 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 were four years old. You heard this. It makes perfect sense. This is the way we live. You know, in a community with other people, and these people are just like extending their arms and pummeling us again and again and again and screaming about their freedom. They don't care about the rest of us. And this is like what the people of Ottawa have said. Well, we're going to have to leave it at that. Up next, our conversation with Michael Albert about his new book, No Bosses. We're recording this segment on February 8th, and we are pleased to welcome to the podcast Michael Albert to talk about his new book, No Bosses. Michael Albert is an American economist, speaker, writer, and political critic, and a creator of a economic idea called Participatory Economics, or Paracon. Uh, listeners to the podcast might be familiar with his book, Paracon, from the early 2000s, and his new book, no Bosses continues to develop some of the ideas that he first developed along with Robin Hanel back in the 90s about Paracon. Uh, Michael Albert is also founder of Z Magazine, which now is also known as uh, Z Communications, right, with the online part of the magazine. The new book is out this year, 2022? Uh, no, it was out in uh, November. Oh, okay. Remind me, it's out via... Zero books. Oh, it's a zero books books. Okay. The new zero books. Well, it was actually done with the old zero books, and then the new zero books got it automatically. Ah, I see. Michael, for those who aren't familiar with Paracon or participatory economics, maybe you could give our listeners a brief sketch. I know there's a lot to it, but give them a, at least a little bit of a sketch, and then we'll, we'll get into some more details. Sure. Um, well, it's meant to be, and people have to decide for themselves, obviously, but it's meant to be a vision for an alternative to capitalism. It is built upon some values, that is to say, aspirations, whatever you want to, whatever term you want to put, self-management, solidarity, diversity, sustainability, efficiency for economic activity and so on and it doesn't present a blueprint it doesn't present a sort of an answer to everything that would happen in the future which is utterly impossible and also inappropriate that's not our task today to worry about policies and choices in the future that people in the future will make what our task is i think is to provide or to envision a set of institutions and then fight for and win a set of institutions that let future people make their own determinations, that provide future people with the circumstances and the means and the, the inclination uh, to control their own lives as they desire. So to that end, it only has a very few central institutions. It has what are called workers and consumers councils, as the alternative locus of decision-making in workplaces and communities. It has a different approach to remuneration, 
so instead of remunerating for property or for power, bargaining power, it remunerates for duration and intensity and onerousness of socially valued work. It has a different approach to the division of labor. In the current division of labor, it's divided up so that there's basically two broad categories of jobs or activity. Uh, in one of those broad categories, people do things which have a significant empowering impact, provide them with information, access to daily decision-making levers, interactive with others, confidence, and, and other, other variables that affect our inclination and our ability to make decisions. And then there's a second set, which are the opposite. Uh, the second set has uh, tasks in the jobs, tasks are combined into jobs, so that the person occupying the job is disempowered, is de denied and prevented from access to information, uh, access to levers of, of decision-making power, confidence, connections to others, and so on. And so you have the first group, which is usually about 20% of the population, dominating the second group, which is usually about 80%. In capitalism, of course, there are the owners above, let's say, 2%, 1%, whatever it turns, right? Different countries, slightly different. And they dominate the whole thing. So there's a three-class map in this, in this way of looking at things. And what participatory economics does is it changes the division of labor to what it calls balanced job complexes, or you could just call it balanced jobs, where every job is comparably empowering. And so it isn't the case that 20% are prepared to rule and 80% to obey. It's instead the case that everybody is prepared to participate and have a say in, in outcomes and able to. And then finally, you have, and literally it is finally, these are the only components really. Uh, I mean, each is spelled out more, but, but basically these are the focuses of participatory economics. So finally, you have to connect workplaces and consumers, workplaces with each other and with consumers, so that the total economic activity of society makes sense, meets needs, develops potentials, at least in the kind of society we want, in the kind of society we have, so that the total activity enriches the few. Uh, but that's what we're getting away from. And so to do that, you need a form of allocation and participatory economics rejects markets and rejects central planning and opts instead for something that it calls participatory planning. And that's the heart of it. Um, actually, I left out one thing. All the way back at the beginning of that list, participatory economics gets rid of private ownership of the means of production. So we no longer have capitalists. Well, what, are your, what, what happens to those things, to those means of production, the factories, the resources, et cetera? And in participatory economics, they become part of what we might call a productive commons. And so people want to use stuff from the productive commons. They have to make a case to the whole economic system, in essence, that it's a, it's a good use. Uh, so productive commons... Workers and consumers self-managing councils. I didn't describe self-management. It'll probably come out as we go along. A new division of labor, balanced job complex, is a new mode of remuneration that we call equitable remuneration and participatory planning. And that is the whole of participatory economics. You wrote Paracon back in, was it 2003? Something like that. Something like that. And I, I remember reading it when it came out or around that time. And by the way, I, I think the thing that sticks in my head the most from reading it back then was the whole discussion of the division of labor and job complexes. I th felt that was like really well worked out theoretically and but also challenging to me because I hadn't really thought about the role of the division of labor in 
hierarchy in the workplace, or at least not as thought out as it was in your book. And I, I really appreciate it the way you've worked out that problem. Mm-hmm. Anyway, you've had a lot of time since then to think more on these issues. And now there's this new book, No Bosses, which, you know, I didn't get out my old copy of Paracon and sit down <laughs> next to No Bosses and go page by page to see <laughs> what's different and what's new. But, right. you know, why, why a new book? What's, what's new about it? Okay, so the, I think there's two parts to an answer to that question. The first part is repeating is not such a bad thing. That is to say, um, if we ruled out repeating, what would happen to the libraries of Marxist texts? Would anybody ever ask the person who writes a new book on introducing Marxism or explaining Marxism or any other topic like that? Why did you do it? Well, one reason that you do it is because the public It's not a question of is the book there in the library, but the public isn't yet the audience that one would want to be informed and aware and have an opinion out of it doesn't yet. And so you try again. So that would be one reason, even if the book was just the same old thing. But I don't think it is. It's not that it's fundamentally different. You're right about that. Right. I I think it's, you know, there's some places where there are some innovations over those years. And so it's changed. But for the most part, if I had to say, what's the biggest difference between this book and the prior book? I would say this book is more succinct. It's more tightly argued. It's clearer. And and in addition to that, you know, it does deal with some things in new ways and in different ways that improve. So that would be my answer. I, we could go through that, but I don't think that's as interesting as going through the vision itself. I mean, that, that would be wrinkles on the vision, yeah. Right, so uh, as you said earlier in this podcast and what I got from the reading of the book is you begin with a number of social values that you want to implement regarding decision-making and economic benefits and burdens and numerous other things, and you suggest that values are the basis for everything in the book that follows. You speak of an agreed standard for organizing our thoughts regarding how an economy ought to meet needs and develop potentials and not waste things that we value. And you seem to suggest that your values are our shared values, at least among people on the left, but I wonder whether that's really the case. I mean, there are big differences within the left about most everything, uh, as you know, and aren't values one of the things about which there are big differences? I'm reminded of your discussions with David Schweikert, a leftist philosopher. Long series of communications about Paracon, which I think you published on Znet, and he rejected Paracon partly because he didn't like the idea of having to submit an annual personal consumption plan in advance. And he says, well, you know, look, maybe I just want to pick up an avocado. And maybe I just want to fry a slice of bacon, you know, with my eggs anytime I want. You know, I, I was like horrified by what he said, but definitely seems to me that this is somebody who values satisfying his sudden whims much more than he values the things that, that you value. I, I don't think that these are necessarily everybody's values. There's only a few, again, listed. The idea, when we were doing this uh, decades ago, we were trying to find a way to to make a case in light of things that we could that we could argue in as 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 a guide to the process, so to speak. And we sort of said, well, look, an economy affects decision making. So what's our value for decision making? What we're asking there is is what do we want to accomplish vis-a-vis decision making? And similarly, what do we want to accomplish vis-a-vis distribution of income? and so on. And so we came up with some values. 
Now, does everybody share them? I don't know. No, of course, if, if everybody shared them, we'd be in a different situation. I wouldn't have to make a case for them even. So I agree with you that not everybody shares these values, but the values are, are not that hard to enumerate, and maybe I should do that. So self-management is the idea that people should have a say in decisions in proportion to the degree they're affected by them. Now, most people don't think about this because they think in terms of either elites should decide or we should have democracy, one person, one vote, uh, and majority rules. And what we're saying is, well, obviously elites shouldn't decide, that's probably agreed on the left, but not entirely, and some people do think that's the case. But we also don't think majority rules, one person, one vote makes any sense. Brendan, you're wearing a hat. The decision to wear that hat to this session, right, wasn't a one person, one vote decision, you just decided. And that's because it affects overwhelmingly you. And there are other decisions that would affect other people. For instance, if you decided to do this work in a manner which made it impossible for me to hear your questions clearly, that wouldn't, you know. So the point is there are different kinds of decisions. They affect people different degrees. And what we want is a goal, perhaps not perfectly reachable in most cases, but as a goal to strive for that people should have a say in decisions in proportion to the degree they're affected. That one's probably somewhat controversial. Solidarity, I don't know who would disagree with it in, in verbally. Some people might disagree with it. But who would disagree with the idea that to have more empathy, solidarity, concern for the well-being of others, everything else equal, is a gain for society? I think most would agree with that one. Diversity, to have um, a diversity of options to protect diversity and so on. That one also I think is probably uncontroversial. Uh, equity is probably quite controversial. To The remuneration for be, should be for how long you work, how hard you work, and the onerousness of the conditions under which you work, but not for power or output. In particular, many socialists, many market socialists might say they favor remuneration for output. So anyway, it's not all agreed. Now let's take Schweigert. He had other concerns also, but the concern that you raised was one that he raised and other people have raised also. And the trouble is that they haven't read the model. So there's two problems. There's the problem you raise, which is, can it really be the case that this is a higher value, right? Let's put it that way. That the desire to be able to meet a need at the moment that you want to meet the need is a paramount value. Okay, so I don't think it is, but it isn't precluded by participatory economics. What David is thinking is, well, you have to make this proposal at the beginning and that's the end of it, right? As the year proceeds, the only thing that you can do is what you could envision for yourself as consumption on day one or week one during planning or whatever. And that's nonsense. The system has to be able to update, not just for David's whims, but for a change in circumstances, a new technology or calamity, a catastrophe, which requires different kinds of production for different needs that all of a sudden exist, like, for instance, for water. I don't know. So the system that you have for allocation, and if David said this, he would have been right. The system that you have for allocation needs to be able to update uh, regularly in a smooth and non-fragmenting and upsetting way. It can't be that you have to continually petition to go get a new shirt or to go get something that you didn't envision. You have to just be able to do it. And that's true. And participatory planning, of course, accommodates that. 
Okay, let me let me follow up uh, with another values question. This is not the first time I've been uh, in a discussion with uh, Michael about this, uh, by the way. To continue with the idea that values are the basis of everything that uh, Paracon is, is built on, you suggest that economies should be based on what fulfills our preferred values, not what implements some old ideological scripture. But then later in the book, page 73, you seem to say that values can't be the ultimate basis. Why not? Because fulfilling some values involves not fulfilling others. This is a trade-off, so we have to choose. And you then say or suggest that the choice is based on the consequences of the choice, on, quote, what fulfilling one value leads to for society versus what fulfilling another value leads to. So the consequences seem to be the ultimate basis here. The ultimate justification for doing this and not for doing that, uh, or for not doing that. And so my question is, is this really any different from implementing some old ideological scripture? Because when you, if we think about Marx's old ideological scripture, it's not a set of commandments to obey him. It's all about the consequences of different economic paths. Sure. And that'll be true for anybody rational, but I don't see how it's any different than the, than the other. So in other words, let's say we're assessing the consequences of a corporate division of labor and a, a balanced job complex approach to the division of labor. And I agree with you. That's what we do. We, we assess the consequences. We ask, what are the implications of choosing one as compared to choosing the other? Same thing for central planning and participatory planning. Same thing for private ownership and a productive commons. Okay. But when you're assessing the consequences, on what grounds are you assessing the consequences? That is to say, you, you look at the consequences of one of these options and you ask, well, do I like the consequences or do I dislike the consequences? Are the consequences positive or negative? And the answer to that question is going to be pretty much for anybody, or at least it should be, do the consequences fulfill things that I think need to be fulfilled? Do they accomplish aims which I desire to accomplish? So for instance, taking the corporate division of labor and the balanced job complexes, a consequence of the corporate division of labor is that there's a coordinator class above the working class. And a consequence of that is that there's a group which has way disproportionate influence over outcomes and another group which has too little influence over outcomes and it therefore violates self-management quite aggressively. And that would be a negative and the balanced job complex approach doesn't have that effect puts people in position to have the appropriate level of self-managing power, and that's a consequence that we like. And so I, I don't understand your distinction between thinking about values and the extent to which they're fulfilled or violated and looking at consequences. That's what you're doing when you're looking at consequences. Now, you, you point out to one other thing, and then we'll get to the scripture. Uh, sometimes things could be in conflict. Yeah, um, it's true. So take the pandemic. People should be able to walk the streets freely wearing whatever they want, right? Or people can walk the streets only with a mask. Um, well, this is about self-management. Ordinarily, the former applies. But in a situation where you're walking the streets can kill someone if you convey COVID to them, then self-management requires that those other people 
have a say too, and that basically we need to all wear masks. So it seems like values are in conflict, but I think when you work through the consequences, you pretty much discover that they aren't. So what's the deal with the scripture? Well, it is possible, although it's not admirable, I don't think, for people to look at things not in terms of consequences. So for instance, take a a religious situation where one is saying, I like that because it fulfills this religious requirement, dictate, but not because it has positive consequences and avoids negative ones, but just because it fits the dictation, right? Libertarianism is very much much against deciding things on the basis of consequences. Right. So I'm saying that some things do other than what I'm saying. It's consequences and values. I don't think they're distinguishable. But you could say instead, look, that's acceptable because it matches this this scripture, right? This scripture says no abortion, and therefore no abortion is good because this says no abortion. As compared to, somebody might argue, well, no abortion is good because it has these consequences which match our values. And then if their value is control over women, you reject that because it's, just, but if, they're, if they have some other argument, okay, you listen to it. But if all they're saying is good because what I dictate or what my document dictates, that's different from a paying attention to values and consequences. And some people, now I'm not saying everybody by any means, but some people, well, here's an example. All right, so Joan Robinson is having lunch with another economist. And the economist says, well, what's the difference between you and a Marxist? Now, Joan was a little bit too creative with this reply because she was generalizing too much. But she said, well, look, I guess the difference is this. If you ask me a question about income, et cetera, the typical Marxist is going to say, well, in volume three, Marx says such and such. Now, it was unfair to say all Marxists would say that. But any case, someone would say in volume three, Marx says such and such, whereas I would pull out a napkin and explain the situation and, you know, why it pertains as it does. And that's what I'm saying. If someone is using Marxism or anarchism or feminism or anything else as a scripture, they would be saying about some policy choice or some visionary institution, I like it because it fulfills this dictate in my scripture. Uh, and there are people, regrettably all too many people who do do that. And so that's not a good thing to be doing. We try not to do it. Um, we try to make a case for what we argue for based on, as you say, values and the consequences of choices, either fulfilling those values or violating them. But let me let, let me get back to this issue of you've, you've kind of tried to meld together values and consequences. The, the thing is that they're not the same and that in my view consequences trump values values are about what you want but the stones sing you can't always get what you want so you know i would love to have a society from this moment on that works according to the principle from each according to their ability to each according to their needs but it ain't possible right now so that's that's a different issue but since it's not possible now I'm going to forsake, to some extent, the values of what I want and say, don't let the perfect be the enemy of, of the good. 
Yeah, I, I think it's a moot argument. I mean, of course, I would agree with you. For example, participatory economics argues for self-management, okay? There is no such thing as perfect self-management. It isn't even something that you can... But what you can do is create a set of institutions which delivers self-management to everybody's satisfaction. It's saying that that's a positive value and that it's one that you can uh, attain. If we put down values that were unattainable, for example, everybody should have whatever they want, right? So, you know, I want an Olympic swimming pool, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's my value. Okay, that's just a stupid value because it's, it is, as you say, not viable. So your concern would be totally all right if you were to say that, well, solidarity is so unreal, why is it one of your values? Diversity is so unreal, why is it one of your values? Self-management is so unreal, why is it one of your values, right? Sustainability is so unreal, why is it one of your values? Okay, I would agree if you can make a case. But individual liberty is, is one of my values and I don't think it's stupid. Nonetheless, I don't want to organize society in a manner in which everybody can just do whatever the hell they want without regard to the consequences to other people. But it's not a stupid value. It's not because it's a stupid value. It's because the implementation in that manner is, is just not viable. I just think we're splitting hairs. I would say, I don't think you really believe in individual liberty as a value unless you believe, I, you know, you have to define the terms unless you believe everybody should be able to do whatever they want. If you believe that everybody should be able to do whatever they want, regardless, you know, just that's because that's the way it should be. It's self-management is precisely addressing the point that everybody shouldn't be able to do everything they want because if everybody does whatever they want, you don't have self-management. You arguably have it for the first, for the one person, but that person then can do things that curb the self-management of other people. And so you wouldn't have it for everybody, right? So if you're Jeff Bezos and you say, my value is I should be able to do anything I damn well please, I should be able to, and everybody else should be able to do, you know, whatever they want up to not infringing my right to do absolutely anything I want. Okay, I suppose that's a consistent position, but it's not mine. I want a situation where we have values that apply to everyone consistently. Each person should have a say in decision making in proportion to the degree they're affected. We can aspire to accomplish that. Hey, we're going to return to this conversation in just a moment. But first, as we do in every episode, we're going to take just a few minutes to hear from Angela Clard, Organizational Secretary of Marxist Humanist Initiative, the organization which sponsors this podcast. Marxist Humanist Initiative, or MHI, aims to contribute to the transformation of this capitalist world by projecting, developing, and concretizing the philosophy of Karl Marx and its further development in the Marxist humanism articulated by Raya Donayevskaya. The ongoing COVID-19 pandemic and today's many other social, political, and economic crises make this a moment to engage people in discussion of these ideas. In the U.S., we are faced with the threat of Trumpism triumphing an all-out authoritarianism extinguishing our right to carry on these discussions. Yet at the same moment, the multiracial movement for black lives has spread to every corner of the country and the world, launching a flood of activism and new ideas that deepen the concept of freedom. MHI is dedicated to the task of proving theoretically that an alternative to capitalism is possible. We are distinguished by our economic analyses in which we do not merely assert but demonstrate that the only opposite to the 
current world economic system is its abolition and replacement with one not based on the production of, quote, value, close quote. Because capitalism cannot be fundamentally reformed, attempts to reform it lead to an intensification of state capitalism, not to socialism. We are not a political party, nor are we trying to lead the masses who will form their own organization and whose emancipation must be their own act. But we have seen that spontaneous actions alone are insufficient to usher in a new society. We seek a new unity of philosophy and organization in which mass movements striving for freedom lay hold of Marxist philosophy of revolution and recreate society on its basis. Our ideas and actions, as well as our structure and rules, are guided by the interests of working people and freedom movements of people of color, LGBTQ people, other minorities, women, youth, and all those around the world who are struggling for self-determination in order to freely develop their own human natures. We have no interests separate and apart from theirs. To this end, we open our website to the widest possible dialogue with people around the world We intend to practice as well as espouse a two-way road between our organization and people outside it as essential to developing a single dialectic in the relationship of theory to practice and as the way to assure the survival of Marxist humanism. Please join us. Andrew, I actually had a follow-up question for you. I'm thinking about the fact that last week we released the podcast about on what grounds we should uh, defend liberal democracy. And there was a discussion of the critique of the Gotha program and the lower stage of communism briefly. And it ties into Michael's book because Michael has a long discussion about different ways of remunerating people's labor. And in the lower stage of communism, Marx argues for remunerating labor according to you know time and effort as opposed to socially necessary labor time. And I always had read that as that the standard for Marx you know, advancing that was that if you get rid of socially necessary labor time, then you no longer have a capital's value and the law of value. And so this would be like really breaking with the law of value. And, and I obviously, I know you agree with that, but you were also arguing last week in the podcast that Marx was like evaluating things against the idea of what delivers the most freedom to people, if I'm not putting words in your mouth, Right. I mean, is that an instance of, you know, evaluating something according to some value? Or is that like different than what, you know, you're discussing with Michael here? Marx certainly has an ultimate value. The ultimate value is human development, the development of human powers as an end in itself. The the problem is we have to grapple with the fact that although he thought that uh, we could eventually have a society governed by the principle from each according to their ability to each according to their need. I mean, that would be great for human development, but he does not think, or he did not think it is realizable right now. It would not be realizable even in a socialist or, you know, a communist society until a tremendous amount of social development, psychological development, technological development took place. So choices are made not on the basis of what one really wants, but on the basis of what is possible, okay? And so choices need to be based not just on what we want. What trumps what we want is what is possible. I mean, basically you have to choose the thing that you want the most from among the set of things that are possible. 
I don't see how anybody could disagree with that, and I certainly don't. It makes no sense to try to attain the impossible. I agree with you. But I have something else to say in response to your little to, to the interchange that just happened, which I hope won't offend you. Why do we care so much what Marx said? Why do you couch the discussion in terms of what Marx said? And we have to deal with what Marx said. That's exactly the opposite of what I said Joan Robinson would do. You could have made exactly the same statements, arguments, evidence without couching it in terms of, well, Marx said this. So what does that gain? It either is to gain some degree of legitimacy because he's some kind of authority. This guy from 150 years ago, you know, we have to reference him. Why? Why is that necessary to do or even desirable to do? Especially if you get in the habit of doing it and you do it in front of people who are unfamiliar with all of that stuff and aren't going to go read it all. Why isn't it better to just make the case? But I still think we're not arguing about anything. Uh, in this case, it would not have been possible for me to say what I wanted to say without discussing Marx because the question was about what was said in the prior podcast. So, so I, ha I had to do that. Moreover, there is a danger both a danger of egoism and a danger of losing the historical thread really needed for productive intellectual work if everything looks like it's coming ab novo. If you're not able to trace the sources of arguments and show their development. I mean, I think that's very important. I don't, I don't have any attachment to, oh, well, Marx said it, so it's got to be right. I, I don't think he, the fact that Marx said anything makes it makes it right or, or, or anything like that. But with regard to Marx, and actually with regard to everybody else, I'm extremely concerned to get the sources of ideas right and so forth. I used to be really diligent when I was a teacher about issues of plagiarism. And it was not because I regarded this as like theft of individual property. I couldn't care at all about that. The problem is plagiarism falsifies the historical record of intellectual development. Okay. I, I understand what you're saying, I think. But in other words, for instance, it doesn't happen in the sciences. It doesn't happen in physics. It doesn't happen in biology. It doesn't happen in any of the sciences. Nobody ever makes a presentation and traces it all the way back, which you could do in those cases, traces it all the way back. It's just not done. Are there references? Sure. And does it happen in anarchism? Do anarchists constantly reference Bakunin or Kropotkin? Not really. I think most anarchists just make a case. Noam is a maybe the most prominent anarchist in the world. You're referring to Noam Chomsky. Yeah. He could certainly continually trace the lineage of things that he's saying, anti-imperialist things that he's saying, or all of it. Sometimes it is valid. I agree with you. Absolutely. Sometimes it's valid. But we get into the habit of doing it so much that we do it when we give talks and the audience has no interest in it. They want to understand the ideas not the lineage. All right, there's not, this is also, I don't think there's much point in discussing this at length because it's taking the place of talking about an economic vision for post-capitalism, which seems to me to be the kind of thing that people should be talking about instead of talking about what we've been talking about for 150 years. 
I think it's a fair question, Michael. I, I we could talk about it the whole, whole podcast <laughs> the, when it's useful and when it's not useful to base an argument in a theoretical tradition or to start from um, the scratch. But wait, let me just let me just add one thing. Participatory economics in no place starts from scratch. We say councils are familiar, and uh, we did nothing to invent that. No, no nothing at all. Uh, we trace the the balanced job complexes and the idea about the third class back to early anarchism, which is where I think it originates. You know, so all of the stuff, the only innovations, let me even add, the only innovations I think in participatory economics that aren't discussed at least somewhere else are the the character of participatory planning and at least elements of the balanced job complex, but not the overall class idea. That's about it, right? And then some refinements. Well, why don't we talk a little bit about the participatory planning before we run out of time? So you're against distribution of goods and services and against allocating labor and other productive resources according to market principles. Um, You're also against distribution and allocation based on central planning. So the question is, are you actually against planning and central coordination of economic plans or or only against the top-down character of what was called central planning? like in the Soviet Union and China, et cetera. In other words, do you think it would it would work if the workers' councils in each workplace or each individual person independently made decisions for themselves without any central coordination? Okay, so um, first part of the question, I think, is are we against planning per se? Well, no, we call the allocation system that we favor participatory planning. So we're obviously, <laughs> we're not against planning. All right, so that's out. But then the second part of the question is, what do we have to accomplish to have not central planning, but still planning, right? And so you're suggesting, well, one thing, and there are people who suggest this as a model, I guess. One thing would be that the workers' council does what it wants, in essence, decides what it's going to do, how much it's going to produce, how it's going to organize its activity, and so on, independent of any kind of central coordination. And I would agree, independent of central, meaning top-down, meaning a coordination which puts excessive amounts of control in the hands of too few people. But if you say independent of coordination independent of what everybody else is doing, then I say, no, that's out. It is the case that what we do in our workplace, let's say we are a bigger workplace, right, affects other people. And self-management says those other people need to have input into the decision. So what we need is an allocation system, and this is a big ask, clearly. What we need is is an allocation system which lets the people who are affected by economic outcomes have a say in those decisions in proportion to the degree that they're affected, to the extent we can. So if our factory makes bicycles, who's affected by what we're doing? Well, the people who need to consume bicycles or who want to consume bicycles, we are affected by it, the workers in the workplace, the consumers of our product are affected by it. If we're polluting, um, or or we're proposing something that pollutes, then the people who are affected by that are affected by it. And so we need an allocation system which somehow, much as it seems to be a really big ask, manages to apportion influence in this kind of appropriate way. And that's what participatory planning is all about. So it's not a situation in which the Workers' Council just decides what it wants to do willy-nilly. 
It's a situation in which the Workers' Council interacts with the entire rest of the economy. That's what the participatory planning system is. It interacts with the entire rest of the economy, hearing the proposals of others, and they hear our proposal, and those proposals are brought into accord through a kind of a negotiation over a series of iterations. And in that way, the outcome reflects the influence of the different parties appropriately. And so that's very different. It's obviously very different from markets. There's no competitive, it isn't buyers against sellers trying to fleece each other, but it's also very different than central planning, which is basically a planning board makes a proposal. Uh, there's reactions to it. The planning board maybe refines it a little bit and, and then there's reactions and then the planning board sends out orders and there's obedience, right? And there isn't any mechanism which apportions to either the workers in the workplace or the consumers consuming, say, the bicycles or the people dealing with the pollution, the appropriate level of say in the final determination of what's planned. And so that's the distinction or the difference. Now, whether we could do this, does participatory planning really do what I'm saying it does, right? That's a bigger question. And one has to look at the actual mechanisms and the process and so on and decide what one thinks. But you can see that my way of judging an allocation system is the following. Does it deliver self-management? Does it deliver solidarity? Does it deliver diversity? Does it deliver sustainability? Right? Does it deliver the goods, that is the stuff that's supposed to be produced, and here's your reference to Marx earlier, in, in accord with the fulfillment and development of the people involved without wasting things that are valued? That's my way of looking at an allocation system. And markets violate all of it. Central planning violates virtually all of it. And I think participatory planning accomplishes it and that that's its it's merit, so to speak. So that's, you know, I, we can talk about the more about the details, you know, all right, workers' councils make a proposal, consumers individually make proposals, consumer councils for neighborhoods and so on make proposals. These proposals are uh, evidenced to everyone. And then there's a refinement of proposals in light of what others have proposed. There are valuations, prices in the process and you arrive at a uh, at a plan and that's also a very succinct and non i wouldn't maintain any of this as an argument that anybody should buy all i would maintain is if what he's saying is true if participatory planning plus balanced job complexes plus equitable remuneration plus workers and consumers self-managing councils plus a productive commons can deliver classlessness right no class division equity, self-management, and so on, then it would be really damn good. And so I should try and figure out what I think about this. And that's why a succinct book that tries to say it more clearly was written, to go all the way back to your first question, to make it possible for people to decide for themselves what they think. The book is No Bosses. And of course, we'll link to it with our podcast description. Thank you so much, Michael, yes, for you, being Michael. on the podcast today. I thank you for discussion. having me. I really appreciate it. Hey, that's all the time we have for this episode of Radio Free Humanity. If you like the podcast, please do stop by MarxistHumanistInitiative.org to listen to other episodes and to read more about these issues and others. 
As always, if you like the podcast, we encourage you to write to us, to comment and rate the podcast, and of course, to share with all your friends and enemies.